Welcome to Noon Edition here on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with today's co-host, Alexander McCall. And we're going to be talking about uh, about hemp. Uh, Indiana legislators legalized the growing of hemp last year, but it hasn't really taken off the way some expected it might. Uh, some say a, a complex set of regulations and permissions makes it difficult for farmers. Uh, some say the crop's connection with marijuana makes politicians wary of fixing the problems. Uh, this week, we're going to talk with three experts on what might be holding hemp back here in the state. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the diverse ways that it could be used, and we're going to talk about some some legislation uh, that's in the, the federal Congress about Hemp. We've got the, uh, our guests are all three joining us on by by phone today. George Blankenbaker is a manager of Real Hemp and a member of the Indiana Hemp Industries Association Board of Directors. Jana Beckerman is a professor and extension plant pathologist at Purdue University. And Alan Kimball is here. He's a member of the North American Industrial Hemp Council. If you have questions or comments, please uh, give us a call here in Bloomington at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome, all of you. Appreciate having all of you here. Um, I think I want to direct my first question to to Alan, a uh, member of the North American Industrial Hemp Council. What is that council, and you know what are the you know how would you define industrial hemp, and what are some uses for it? Kind of a, a bunch of questions there at once. Well, I'll take the first question first. The North American Industri- Industrial Hemp Council was formed uh, uh, before my uh, joining it. I think it was back in the '90s uh, when there was an effort to. Uh, uh, take advantage of the multitude of opportunities offered by the hemp plant. And one of the founders of the uh, council was uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Malberg, who for 25 years was a professor of botany at IU Bloomington. Uh, and uh, during that time, he became uh, a the world's leading academic expert in the plant genus cannabis, uh, which composes uh, both marijuana and industrial hemp, which are the main subsets of uh, the cannabis species. Uh, uh, The the council has been working for all this time to try to get hemp approved at the national level. It is still banned. It is listed as a controlled substance. Uh, by the Drug Enforcement Administration, and even though many states, now 20, uh, have legalized industrial hemp within their boundaries, the federal government uh, still prescribes it. It is not legal to grow it, uh, except recently under certain conditions, uh, which uh, were caused by the last passage of the Farm Bill, which authorized universities and state agencies in states which have their own authorization legislation in place to grow what I say is, quote, research, unquote, plots of hemp to try to uh, determine best species applications and all the rest of it. It's it's a foot in the door at the national level, but still uh, farmers cannot freely go out and plant hemp because it isn't at, at at the federal level and it's an illegal crop. And 
whoever wants to take this question can. I'm interested, why why is it still controlled at the federal level? What are what are the federal government's concerns? George, do you want to try that first? Sure. Uh, thank you. Um, really, it's a, a situation of misperception. Uh, there's still confusion uh, that hemp is marijuana or that it will lead into marijuana or potentially be a gateway. Uh, so a lot of what we've been working on at the uh, Hemp Industry Association level um, is education. Uh, and what we find is that when we educate uh, both researchers as well as uh, politicians, uh, once they understand the actual facts and that these are two very distinct uh, species of plant and all of the commercial uh, potential of the industrial hemp, uh, they're very much on board, uh, and they uh, ask how they can support us. Uh, but then when we ask them, well, can you come out publicly and state your support, um, they pull back and say, well, they can't. And the reason for that is because they understand their colleagues and constituents still have those same misperceptions that they had. And so what we're finding is that it's a really a ground roots effort to go out there and uh, educate people to make them aware of the facts. And once it's understood, then people start coming on board. Okay, I'm going to go to... Oh, I want to go. Yeah, yeah, I want to go to the educator. So, yeah, Jan, I'm sorry. I didn't okay. mean to cut you out. So, so I just wanted to clarify a couple of things. So, one of the the problems with legalizing industrial hemp is the fact that there aren't clear uh, techniques and methods that you can quickly and readily use in the field to distinguish between hemp and marijuana. Um, so that that is one of the issues. And in fact, they're not different species either. They have been bred differently, but we're all talking for the most part, about the same species, uh, which is cannabis sativa, that uh, we're using to grow industrial hemp. Uh, a lot of people think they can walk into the field and just based on how the plant looks or how the plant smells, uh, that that would be a, a sufficient way to distinguish between marijuana and industrial hemp. Um, and in fact, that, that isn't. So that's part of the confusion as to uh, why there's these holdups in these regulations. And of course, there's always the, the argument of uh, whether it's true or not of a slippery slope. So either I, I want to go back to either George or Alan, can or, or even you, Jana. Can somebody tell us a little bit about uh, what are some of the things industrial hemp can be used for? Well, I, let me jump in just before I, I and George would be a, a great responder for that question. But I think it's important to to, to describe the difference between industrial hemp and marijuana. Industrial hemp is uh, defined as uh, cannabis sativa that has uh, less than 0.3% of tetrahydrocannabinol, which is THC, which is the, uh, the uh, narcotic uh, element within the cannabis plant. And it is very difficult to look at a plant and see whether it's got 0.3 THC or less. Uh, and uh, Jen is exactly right. That's that's a uh, an issue. Now, going on to George, why don't you talk about the uh, applications? There are so many. Uh, well, there really are. Uh, and, and Alan, I appreciate it. And um, appreciate uh, uh, Jenna's uh, correction. Uh, it's uh, I there. There are two distinct varieties. I, I like to frame it as a uh, uh, like a dog. Uh, you've got a German Shepherd and a Poodle. Uh, they're very distinct, but they're both dogs. And within hemp, it has traditionally uh, 
been used for industrial purposes uh, going back uh, thousands of years. Um, and in America, uh, it was uh, used uh, extensively uh, at the founding of our country, um, used for rope, textiles, uh, the sales of ships, etc. cetera. Uh, the oil was used uh, in burning lamps, uh, also used uh, in paints. Um, more uh, recently, uh, what we're finding is uh, that there's been a move to uh, uh, more eco-friendly uh, materials and lighter materials. And so one of the biggest uh, uh, commercial successes uh, we've seen is in the automobile industry, uh, where they're using it as non-woven fiber to make door panels and a, and a variety of products and automobiles, uh, replacing heavier fiberglass, et cetera. Um, and uh, very interestingly, uh, we're starting to see some high-tech applications. Uh, there's a team of researchers at Clarkson University in New York. Uh, they used uh, hemp fibers to make carbon nanosheets. Uh, that's a pseudographing structure. It's a form of carbon that exists as a sheet, uh, one atom thick. But what, they're, what they use them for are supercapacitors. Uh, and the supercapacitors made with the uh, hemp fibers uh, performed on par or better than the commercial graphene at a fraction of the cost. And this is a big thing because uh, the supercapacitors are the energy storage devices uh, which transform the way electronics are powered. Um, and and uh, hemp is showing to deliver some of the best power energy combinations for any carbon. But when you look at the hemp plant, uh, there's really three uh, revenue sources. Uh, there's the fiber we've talked about, which has traditionally been the, uh, uh, the main material used from hemp. Uh, and then uh, more recently, we've seen a lot of demand for the seed. Uh, the seed is a, uh, a true superfood. Uh, it contains, uh, it's the richest source of essential fatty acids, uh, omega-6 and omega-3. Uh, the perfect ratios, and it has a complete protein uh, containing all your essential amino acids. And then the third area uh, would be the cannabinoids. And uh, as was discussed earlier, um, the hemp plant uh, does contain all the same cannabinoids as the marijuana and what we think of as medical marijuana, but by definition, it has to be less than 0.3% THC. So you can't get high off of hemp, but it still has the cannabinoids that provide the medical applications. And in fact, um, it, it is a lot of researchers consider another cannabinoid called CBD, uh, cannabidiol, uh, is potentially having more uh, medical applications than THC. Uh, it is non-toxic, non-psychoactive, and uh, there's actually um, a lot of uh, research being done on it, and even uh, 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 pharmaceutical companies uh, are doing trials with it. Uh, and that is the main cannabinoid that uh, we hear about in treating some of these uh, uh, seizure, uh, Dravet syndrome, uh, uh, and other seizure-type uh, situations affecting young people uh, that want to take uh, the medicines from the cannabis, but don't want to get high, obviously, for children. 
and CBD is uh, looking to be a, a safe way to address these intractable diseases, which do not respond at all to traditional drugs. So again, a whole host of things. Uh, it's considered, uh, it's said that there's more than 25,000 different uh, industrial applications for hemp. Uh, again, ranging from the fiber to the seed and edible superfood to the uh, cannabinoid, which is more of the medicinal side. All right. Let, let me give our phone numbers again. We're talking about uh, hemp and hip, hemp produ- production in Indiana and, and some of the laws surrounding hemp and all sorts of things. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, one 285 outside of the Bloomington calling area, wfiu.org slash noon edition if you want to join our live chat. And you can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So I wanted to go back to the to the legal aspects of, of this discussion, uh, make sure that I understand um, what's going on. So on, at the federal level, hemp is still a controlled substance, and there are bills going through the House and Senate this year to try to, to change that. What was the law that changed in Indiana last year, and who can grow hemp in the state of Indiana if it's still a controlled substance on the federal level? Uh, who wants to take that one? I guess I'll take Janet? that because okay. I'm the one who's actually growing the hemp. There you go. Thank so, you. <laughs> uh, so the farm bill set it up so that uh, hemp could actually be examined uh, at a research uh, institution. So that would be uh, an institution like Purdue or IU, uh, the state land grants, to uh, actually evaluate its utility as an agricultural crop. And so... What we at Purdue saw was an opportunity. It's kind of that they opened the door, so we wanted to make sure we put our foot in the door. And then we went through the process to, uh, we we had to fill out uh, forms with the DEA to allow us to actually work with a controlled substance, in this case, the the seeds of the plant, uh, and then plant these in the field. And we then also worked with the state police to make sure that uh, we were uh, abiding by the laws and rulings, which uh, were sort of being developed on the fly as we were going through this process. Uh, we, and so in order to do so, we set up research plots. Our research plots were uh, asking the questions, how do we best grow hemp under uh, different nitrogen uh, inputs in a conventional system and in an organic system? And we, we originally were hoping to evaluate a variety of different cultivars to see how they performed in Indiana. Um, and unfortunately, we were only able to obtain two, but we were able to evaluate those two to see how they performed and, and sort of get a, a feel for the organism and see what uh, things we needed to prepare for in the future and also to inform growers, farmers who are interested in growing industrial hemp, uh, what some of the, the issues are in, in getting this. Uh, into the ground, established, and uh, productive. So, Jenna, tell me a little bit about uh, what your research has, has seen so far. What are what are you guys taking a look at? So, you know, it's, it's really funny. I'm a plant pathologist, and when I started this project off, from everything I had read online, you know, hemp doesn't get any diseases, and it's like, I'm not quite sure why I'm, I'm doing this project. This is going to be the most boring thing ever for me because it doesn't have any diseases. And then we were confronted with uh, the wettest year on record. And we had a lot of diseases. So my personal research in this project was looking at the pathogens that impact hemp production. And uh, I had a wonderful year for that. Um, I don't think anybody else had a a really good year. And then we were looking at the interactions between those and uh, nitrogen and also uh, the different cultivars. 
All right. So, so Jana, just to, uh, again, I want to clarify and make sure that I haven't made a mistake in my opening. So um, it sounds as if uh, growing hemp in Indiana is under a, a very strict set of guidelines. Is that correct? It, it is. Uh-huh. So right now, uh, unless you're associated with a research university, you're not able to grow hemp. And we took a different approach than the approach that was taken down in Kentucky. Kentucky ended up purchasing large quantities of seeds and then um, providing those to farmers. Uh, And I don't know what research program is is going on. I I can't speak to that. I don't know what they're doing. But what we decided to do was to do a very small, we we only had two-acre plots. We wanted to make sure that we could do everything in such a way that uh, we didn't want to give anyone a reason to stop us from doing this research. Right. So we, we made sure it was small. We made sure it was uh, controlled. Uh, we made sure that it was very explicit. Uh, I, I was, you know, one of my proudest moments was explaining to the, uh, the DEA office people, you know, the research that I was doing. And, uh, you know, when you see their eyes roll back in their heads, as a scientist, you know you've successfully explained what it is you're doing. <laughs> Yep. All right. So, um, so from from your research and you know what what comes what comes next? And we've got George, uh, who's connected to the Indiana Hemp Industries Association, and we've got Alan, who's a North American Industrial Hemp Council. Um, you know, from your research in this small sort of controlled environment that you have, you know, what would be the next step for hemp to become a, a viable product in Indiana? I'm going to start with the one area, and then I'm going to switch over to to Alan and George. The biggest difficulty we had was in securing seed. And if this is going to become a viable industry in Indiana or in the broader United States, we need to have a reliable seed source in order to provide the seed to growers. And that was one of the biggest uh, findings, I think, that, that we had. Uh, and it obviously isn't a research finding, but we need to develop uh, an agricultural supply chain beginning with the seed and then ending with the processing. And I think that's a really good segue for okay. George and Alan. Okay. George? Well, uh, yeah, a big, a big part of it uh, is still getting the uh, bills passed at the Senate and in the Congress um, so that we can get it off the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, that's going to open it up for a lot of the industry players to want to get involved. It removes a lot of the impediment. Uh, so there's the uh, Senate Bill uh, 134, uh, which is in need of uh, co-sponsors. And then there's the companion bill. Uh, it's 525 in the, uh, in the House. Uh, that would remove industrial hemp from the Controlled Substances Act uh, opening up um, uh, the legalization of hemp. And, uh, Jana, correct me if I'm wrong, but right now, uh, when you do bring in whatever seed you bring in, under the current law, you have to destroy it at the end of the season. So we we're not able to that ours Go ahead. below 0.3% THC, so we did not have to destroy it. Originally, that was the agreement, though, that everything needed to be destroyed. Okay, so that's opened up. Uh, well, that's that's uh, these are the types of things that, that we need in order to move forward. Um, uh, as Jana mentioned, there's a lot of infrastructure. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention uh, earlier was uh, the fiber being used for a lot of the uh, 
building materials, et cetera, uh, which, which is a very viable uh, thing. But the issue is we don't yet have the infrastructure here in the U.S., uh, and that's going to have to be built once we know we've got the supply of the, of the fiber and the product. One area that we do have uh, and are ready to scale here in the U.S. is processing of the seeds. So, and most likely what we're going to see first for the commercialization um, of the food products. Uh, right now, they're uh, imported from Canada and Dublin year on year. Uh, and with $6 million of seeds were imported in 2011. Uh, this year, we're expected to top $100 million. Uh, we're seeing a lot of those products go into your Whole Foods. I'm starting to see them, uh, the seeds and uh, protein uh, in uh, Kroger, et cetera. So um, your, your proteins and your edible oils, those uh, rich source of essential fatty acids, omega-6, omega-3, um, are driving the market. Uh, when, it, uh, when it comes to actually growing it, though, here in the U.S., uh, and I, you know, Jana will. will uh, I'd like to defer back to her again. But um, uh, we do a lot of contract farming overseas, and and when we bring uh, new plants to new areas, it generally takes us about three years to uh, bring in the, the various cultivars, to adopt them, uh, and to scale them uh, to pilot projects, et cetera, uh, pilot commercial projects before there's confidence. We know everything we need to know. Uh, so that we can promise the farmers to expect, or, or not promise, but so that we can inform the farmers uh, to expect a certain yield if they follow a certain protocol using very specific seed, et cetera. Um, and uh, so even, uh, so I think what's going to happen is that the legal landscape uh, is changing uh, as the research is increasing on uh, the Purdue side. And I think what we're going to see is a, an evolution here over the next two or three years where we have the research caught up. We have varieties of plant available, uh, supply of seed, as Janet said, the supply chain, where we have um, uh, farmers then uh, ready to plant, uh, and we've got uh, buyers willing to contract off of those farmers uh, with processors in place. and. There are already processors that are starting to process Canadian seed. Okay. So, yeah. Let me let me get back to that uh, in just a minute. We're gonna. Ha I, I want to give Alan an opportunity to to uh, sort of summarize where you think this is uh, before we have to take a short break. So, Alan, I know you have to leave us after the break on the national level. What chance does do these bills have, and uh, how important is it to you? Well, Bob, I think uh, both Jenna and George have given excellent. Uh, insight into uh, the issues. There are many issues uh, around this. Uh, the hemp uh, uh, was legalized in Canada in eight, 1998 or 1999. Uh, and the growth of the uh, production of hemp uh, crop in Canada has been slow but steady. Uh, at first in Ontario, uh, a number of farmers jumped on the bandwagon and thought they had a market for the fiber, and they grew fiber varieties, uh, and it was a failure. They, nobody, there was one little company up there that tried to organize to process the fiber, and uh, uh, it never really caught on. But out in western Canada, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, 
uh, farmers planted for the seed or the grain, which George has described as a superfood, and, and that is taking hold, and that's where the primary uh, uh, application for American farmers appears to be at this time. We'll take a lot more research, a lot more development to finally work it off the fiber side. It's not inconsiderable, but the priority at the moment would go to the uh, food uh, derivatives and the food uses, and they are many. Uh, the uh, congressional legislation uh, is they both, both are uh, in, in play, but they're not advanced, they, they, and they probably will not be during this Congress. Uh, which means it'll have to be refiled when the Congress uh, takes over and uh, takes uh, place. Uh, there is one Indiana co-sponsor on the House bill. It's Todd Young from from Southern Indiana. I think he represents Bloomington. Yes, he does. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he he has come to understand the issue. There's an effort to uh, educate the balance of our congressional representatives, and uh, I think there's some light at the end of that town. I think that's uh, all right. That's working. Okay. Well, thank you. I want to thank Alan Kimball for being here with us in the first half of the program. Thank you for uh, George Blankenbaker and Jana Becker- Beckerman. We hope you you'll just sit tight for a, a minute or so. We're going to have to take a short break, and we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Alexander McCall. And we're talking about uh, hemp and uh, how it's being studied, basically, the research being done on it in Indiana and how that might lead to some uh, full-scale farming of the crop at some point. If you have... If you have a question or a comment, please call us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Alex? Um, right before we took a break, we were discussing kind of uh, some legislation that's making its way through the United States Congress uh, regarding hemp. Um, and um, I guess these bills would remove hemp from the controlled substances list. And we do have a caller on the line, um, Anthony from Bedford. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Anthony, can you hold on just a second? We can't hear you. Okay. All right. Yes, go ahead. Okay, you had, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, you had mentioned that um, uh, the product could be used for 2,500 different applications. 
So essentially, you'd be competing with like 2,500 different uh, industries out there. And, and so I'm just wondering, how strong is the lobbyist for, for the hemp industry? Because you're competing against a lot of other industries. George? Well, we have uh, Vote Hemp, uh, and uh, if somebody were uh, to want to take action and can actually go to votehemp.com, there's a Take Action tab. Uh, at the national level, we have the Hemp Industry Association, um, and uh, they've been leading efforts to expand the markets for industrial hemp since its founding in 1994. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2001, the DEA attempted to ban the, the hemp uh, uh, imports from Canada, the seeds that uh, Alan was talking about, and uh, uh, the HIA uh, basically um, uh, uh, sponsored a legal lawsuit against the DEA, and after two and a half years, uh, the DEA lifted uh, that ban, um, allowing for the, the seeds to come in. But, um, no, I don't really see it uh, so much as competing. Uh, if you think of uh, where its uses are uh, on its uh, superfoods, et cetera, um, Obviously, there, it is a complete protein. It's one of the few in that area other than soy. Um, right now, for people that are wanting to move away from soy protein, they're going to pea protein, usually with rice. Uh, hemp is a complete protein. So um, it, it, it is a better choice if we can get economies of scale and get the price in line. When you look at building materials uh, and the fibers, uh, many of those are already being imported. Uh, so you don't have local industries that are wanting to protect themselves. Uh, you're competing against jute fiber and other things that are coming from uh, overseas countries. Uh, and hemp, again, is a better fiber, uh, but we have to have the infrastructure here to process it so that it can be economical and compete. Um, uh, when you look at the, the building materials, um, uh, it is... Again, for environmentally friendly, uh, there is a movement towards that. And uh, these are the areas that um, uh, people are, are latching onto. When, when hemp building materials are used, for instance, it's non allergenic, non toxic, uh, it is uh, fire resistant, uh, it's mildew resistant, et cetera. Uh, it's a very insulative uh, uh, material, and um, it has uh, several advantages that companies are actually wanting to, to enhance their carbon neutral status or enhance their environmental status, they're looking for products to do that. So there's actually, uh, we haven't found any resistance on the commercial side. Uh, we've only found proponents asking us, when will it be available? They want to go to carbon neutral, they want uh, environmentally friendly materials, but they want them cheap. Uh, and uh, the legalization of hemp, allowing us to grow it here in the U.S., uh, and once we get economies of scale, it'll bring in the industries then to process it. And you'll be building a whole supply chain of uh, new uh, economics uh, from the farmers to the processors uh, to the wholesalers and the retailers. Um, and we've only seen, again, positive support in those areas. The only negative we're running into is misperception that this is somehow uh, a marijuana plant or going to uh, lead to legalization of marijuana. And for those that, that feel that that's not the right thing, uh, there, 
there is a, a pushback from uh, the misperception that this is either a THC uh, producing plant or uh, that it's going to lead to legalization of one. Let me uh... – let me ask you, George, I, I have a, a, an article here from uh, a publication called Mar- Modern Farmer, and it, it actually sort of takes, I don't know, it takes a different approach, I guess. It says uh, it, it's actually in favor of uh, legalizing hemp farming, but it says that at the same time, the claims of hemp activists are often overblown. I'm quoting here. It's a highly useful, highly versatile crop, but its utility is, for the most part, fairly marginal, at least going by the size of the existing markets and estimates for how big a domestic U.S. market could be. Um, do you have a reaction to that? So this, this publication is saying um, that, you know, the, that the ideas of what hemp could do for U.S. economy are overblown. But sure. Um, in the near term, uh, it, it is going to be uh, a small uh, uptake. Um, even if you if, if you look at soybeans, when uh, and that was only a, a several decades ago, uh, they also uh, had a slow uh, start. Uh, but then once people understood their uses and the farmers scaled up and the cost uh, economies of scale came in, uh, and then you have indus- industry. Uh, looking at how to process it and process it more economically, uh, it starts to steamroll. And I already spoke on the superfood aspects of hemp, uh, both its protein as well as its oil. Um, and uh, there's considerable demand there. What is the hindrance uh, cost? Uh, it's more costly than the alternative proteins or oils. But again, that's an economies of scale issue. And uh, Janet could speak on, uh, you know, projected the cost from farmers and how it would compete against corn and soy, et cetera. Uh, but uh, so far, evidence uh, is showing that um, it will be uh, uh, will be able to compete as an additional crop, uh, such that the farmers are making adequate money. And again, it's an economies of scale thing. As far as its use in the uh, all these building materials, and again, the twenty-five thousand different industrial uses. Uh, yes, um, you could say that that's overblown right now, uh, and it's, again, because of cost. If you look at the nonwoven fibers I spoke of earlier, one of the big commercial successes for him is being uh, used in the uh, automobile industry for the door panels, etc. Um, the hemp costs about 60% more at the moment uh, than the other competing fibers. Um, and these are all uh, the, the current hemp fiber is imported from Europe, uh, and it's competing against jute, et cetera, which uh, coming from uh, Sri Lanka, et cetera, uh, India. So um, uh, again, what we are finding is that people are looking at uh, the process to process the fiber. Uh, there's a decorticator. Um, that's the first thing. Well, there haven't been any innovations in the decortication of hemp fiber uh, for, um, for decades. And uh, it's only now that people are looking at the potential of that, that they're getting excited and interested to really put efforts into that. So there's several people at this stage uh, that are coming, uh, that are putting work into this. Um, again, one of the things we're, you're going to find is that as long as it is not legal at the federal level, you're not going to get a lot of big industry putting a lot of money and research into things if they don't know there's going to even be the possibility of scaling this up. Mm -hmm. But once this legal landscape uh, clears up, 
and uh, the researchers such as uh, Purdue and Jana's team uh, are able to say that this is going to be um, a profitable crop for the farmers to grow. Uh, and then you have on the food side, you've got people already wanting to contract it, and we start getting the economies of scale. That's when you're going to see the industry come in and, and start looking at how can we efficientize this, make it efficient so that it can compete. And then you're going to see several areas of, uh, of application. Um, Thanks, again, George. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to take a moment to go back and thank our caller, Anthony from Bedford, um, and I want to give out our phone numbers again. Um, you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about industrial hemp um, and all the uses for it. Uh, if you're in the Bloomington area, you can give us a call at 812-855-0511, or you can call us toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can join our live chat at WFIU.org uh, slash Noon Edition, or you can send us a tweet at Noon Edition. Okay, so I want to go back to, to Jana. You know, we've talked a lot about, um, well, the, the, the concerns about, you know, hemp and industrial hemp and marijuana. You know, you're, you're studying this at an academic level, obviously, but, you know, from your perspective, I mean, can, can these two products be separated in a sufficient way that, that this could become, a, you know, an, an easily grown crop in the state? So, so the, the two products actually are separated. If you look at uh, industrial marijuana production in Colorado as a, an example or as a, a counterpoint, uh, this is a, a plant that is actually grown uh, in a very uh, high input production sort of fashion. It's grown in a greenhouse. It's grown under very controlled conditions. Um, and all of the plants that are grown are clonal, meaning you know they're genetically identical. Uh, and that's a very different, and that's to, to maintain the quality, to maintain a consistency in the level of THC or CBD. When you're growing something industrially out in the field, we don't have very good control over how much sunlight we're going to get, and we certainly don't have as much control over how much rain we're going to get. I mean, we can irrigate when it's dry, but in a, a year like last year where we had twice as much rain, um, you're, you're, you can't control things out in the field like you can in the greenhouse. So I think when you look at those two different systems, people will always grow marijuana out in the field. But if you're talking about a medical marijuana or uh, growing recreational marijuana for profit as is legal in uh, Colorado, you need to have much more careful control over your final product mm -hmm. in order to uh, maintain quality. For industrial hemp, we're looking at a different product. We're looking at the oil, we're looking at the protein, and we're looking at the, the fiber. And so I think those two, uh, how, how they're grown is actually the, the biggest way to discriminate between them. And Jana, you're a researcher. I'm sure uh, I, I would assume you've had the opportunity to speak with researchers in other states who are also researching hemp. What, what kinds of things are they looking at and experiencing? Um. The, the research, there's a lot of people growing, or, or there's not even a lot of people growing hemp because of the way the farm bill was set up and the difficulty in procuring seed. Um, there is research being done, I believe, up in North Dakota and up in Minnesota where they were evaluating different cultivars to see how they performed, um, but, uh, and Colorado, of course, as well. Um, but as far as the research and what they're seeing, there's been a lot of uh, 
challenges. One, getting the seed, as I keep saying, but the other is consistency in the seed. Uh, the fact that hemp hasn't been grown like a crop like uh, uh, corn or soybean, for example, means that a lot of the breeding background isn't there, and some basic agronomic traits that you would expect with an agricultural crop, uh, consistency at time of harvest, consistency in height, consistency in, in ripening, um, some of these things are lacking with hemp. Some of it is also the, the simple consistency of seed germination. Uh, a lot of us had problems with uh, variability in uh, germination, and if you don't get a really good germination rate, you don't get a good stand. If you don't get a good stand, you don't get a good yield. Um, so th those are some of the, the problems that we're all seeing. Uh, in talking with some growers out in um, Manitoba, uh, the, the seed germination and stand establishment has been some of the biggest issues, which goes back to the area that I work in, which is plant pathology and the uh, fungi and uh, microbes that actually prevent that from happening. So that's some of what we're seeing. Yeah. So um, to to go a little bit deeper in this, I mean, we've you know, marijuana has been obviously is a huge issue, and it's been in the news in the last few years uh, with legalization in in Colorado and Washington. I'm not sure if there are other states, but those two in particular uh, come to mind. Um, so are we seeing are we seeing the two different industries? Um, blossom in those in state. Let's just take Colorado. Is there an industrial hemp industry that's that's blossoming similar to you know we know that a lot of people are going there and that they're you know the the marijuana industry in terms of recreational use yeah. and medicinal uses is, is booming. Yeah, that's so. such a great great question. It's so insightful because uh, actually there's more legal marijuana being produced than legal industrial hemp. Um, so, you know, marijuana has been legalized uh, for recreational use in, in several states, and it's also been legalized for medical use in, in many more. Uh, industrial hemp, though, uh, I believe is only allowed to be grown legally in Colorado, and I'm not even quite sure about that. That one seems... Uh, so, again, there's a lot of... Uh, it, it's, it's pretty vague, yeah. and, but the thing that's ironic is the fact that, you know, here we have a product that doesn't have any narcotic properties to it. It's been tested to confirm it has no narcotic properties, but there's less production in this industry because the, the legislation is preventing this widespread, you know, because we would be talking about growing acres as opposed to growing, you know, greenhouse size uh, amounts. Just to, to follow up on what you said, uh, this particular story that I quoted from before says earlier this month, a farmer in Colorado actually harvested the first legally produced industrial hemp crop in 56 years. But as you just said, it's not even quite legal in Colorado by state law because the regulations governing uh, industrial hemp production aren't set to go into effect until next year. So Correct. Okay. So, and that's what I mean about it being, you know, when you say legal versus illegal, it's, it's a little jiggy. Right. Still, so. right. Okay. Well, and and you, know, you have to keep in mind that at the federal level, it's legal for research. So if they grow it in Colorado, uh, they would have to consume it in Colorado. Uh, if a company were to process and put in a product, uh, at the federal level, it would, it, this would not be a product that would be able to cross state lines. Okay. 
It, it, it is complex. The whole issue is, is complex. I'm trying to get my arms wrapped around it. Yeah, I'm, kind, I'm kind of interested to know, uh, and George, maybe you can answer this question. Indiana legislators um, legalized hemp, um, and I, I would be interested to know, you know, why might Indiana be more interested in legalizing hemp than federal legislators might be? Well, uh, we legalized uh, hemp uh, to uh, conduct the research under the Farm Bill Act, uh, passed in 2014. But I think one of the reasons why we would be very interested in legalizing it here in Indiana is if you look at hemp and its history, uh, hemp grows very well wherever corn grows. Uh, so if you were to ask someone, uh, you know, where would be the best place to grow hemp, you would think of the Midwest Valley and, and the or the Midwest and the Ohio Valley. Uh, in fact, um, if you go back in history during uh, World War II, uh, we had a Grow Hemp for Victory campaign, um, a film produced by the FDA to encourage farmers to grow hemp because the Japan had cut off our uh, fiber supplies during World War II, uh, and uh, the Navy uh, needed the fiber for ropes, et cetera. Um, and it was in the Midwest uh, where almost all of the, uh, the hemp was grown during that time. Um, so it, it could be a big boon. I think the legislators here are looking at it as uh, potentially being a big boon for uh, farmers as well as uh, processors. So were you at the, um, the event last week in Noblesville or recently in Noblesville? George? Uh, yes, I was, uh, the Hemp Symposium. Yeah, so can you explain a little bit about what that was all about? Well, that was really uh, one of the uh, educational uh, aspects that the Indiana Hemp Industry Association uh, does, and, and that was to bring together uh, researchers. We had uh, one of the researchers from Purdue, as well as uh, commercial uh, uh, people and farmers, and, and obviously invited the general public to basically facilitate uh, in an, uh, an educational uh, platform uh, where everybody is bringing up to speed uh, on the legal landscape as well as the research uh, from Purdue side and the potential commercialization uh, uh, opportunities. Um, at the event, there were several um, uh, companies there that had booths uh, displaying hemp products. Uh, all of it right now has to be imported. Uh, but it could eventually be made in the U.S. And in fact, uh, one of the companies there, uh, Foods Alive, uh, they are processing uh, seeds up in their plant in uh, uh, North Indiana, um, and they make a, a whole line of uh, food products. So again, since it's legal, um, they can contract directly with the farmers here uh, in Indiana uh, and continue to grow their market. All right, so Jana, um, you are a plant pathologist. Have you worked on other plants similar to to hemp? And I mean, how I'm trying to to place you know the uniqueness of this project for you. This is this is a, a very unique project okay. uh, on a variety of levels. I mean, you have uh, such a great history with this plant, uh, and it's it's also it's uh, a really quite a beautiful plant to see it growing. Um, it's it has a it can serve a, a huge purpose within the Indiana agricultural landscape. You know, currently our, our big crops are corn and soybean and, and wheat to a, a much lesser extent. And hemp can serve as a possible rotation crop, which allows us to diversify 
and, and in the process of creating this diversity, uh, possibly create more uh, sustainability for farmers, um, particularly small farms and organic farms as well. Uh, so it, it's the, the opportunities are really uh, tremendous, and it is a unique one. Okay, so when when you say that it's really pretty, I think you said I don't. I'm not sure if you said pretty or it's really. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous to watch. So, does it look like uh, you know marijuana that you would see on, you know, in various stages? It, it doesn't or? quite look like the same, okay. and and that was you know one of the most interesting things uh, with this was working with the the state police. Uh, we worked with some some wonderful people, and. When we started growing this, they were scratching their head, and they were like, this does not look like ditchweed. <laughs> uh, and, and because it doesn't, it had been bred to produce, you know, oil seeds, so it looks very differently. But then, you know, at another point, you're walking in the field, and my, my students, you know, reported that on certain days walking through the field, they just directly went home because they didn't want to stop to pick up some fast food or anything else because they smelled like stoners. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it, it would have a really strong, pungent smell certain times of day, certain days of the week. We could never quite figure out what it was, but it, it smelled like marijuana. Um, one of my students actually uh, developed an allergy to it as well, which is uh, you, you see in a lot of uh, field crops. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, but it is a, it's a really attractive plant. We put pictures up of everything that we did on our website, which is PurdueHemp.org. Okay. If anyone's interested in looking at, at what the plant looks like uh, in different stages of development. And just one last follow-up for you. Um, at Purdue, so are, you're, you're obviously one of the researchers working on it. How, how big is the research project? Are there more faculty members besides yes, you? Yes, there, there are. And if you can give me a chance to acknowledge a lot of the people sure. who are involved, that would be Ron Turco in agronomy, who's working not only on the soil side of things, but also trying to keep us on the straight and narrow with the, the legal aspect. <laughs> There's Kevin Gibson, who spoke at the symposium uh, earlier in the week, and he is a weed scientist. And uh, Brian Young in my department as well is another weed scientist working with us. We have Michael Gunderson, an ag econ, who's trying to develop the budgets so people understand how much money can be uh, obtained if you were to grow this on your farm and how many acres you would need to, to grow in order to make this a profitable enterprise. Kareen Alexander from Ag Econ has stopped by. Uh, Michael Wettstein from Ag Econ has also uh, helped with the project. Uh, and uh, food science, uh, George mentioned uh, Foods Alive. And so we have uh, food science people working not just with Foods Alive, but also uh, in the future looking at other possibilities. And that would be uh, Haley Oliver and Lisa Maurer and okay. Amanda Deering. So, I mean, it's a big group trying to, to figure out how we can kind of get this hemp industry going. Okay. Well, thank you. I think that really uh, helps summarize this show because it's obviously a a big issue in Indiana if you can figure out how to, to make this all work. So I want to I want to thank you, uh, Jana Beckerman, for being here with us. And also, of course, George Blankenbaker, thanks. You had uh, a whole lot to offer today. We're very much more educated on this issue now. For producer Drew Dodlin, engineers Mike Pashkash and, and Alexander McCall, my co-host, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, 
addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.